What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi again, everybody, and here's what's ahead this hour. The housing market is booming and just posted a record-breaking sales figure. Will this be the industry that gets the economy to line up with the stock market? And what if it starts to overheat, we will ask. Plus, the parabolic move in Tesla. The chart looks like a rocket taking off, and its market cap eclipses some of the biggest companies in the world. We'll dig into the numbers as the stock gets set to split. And tractors and sneakers are selling. Epic gets new teammates in its battle with Apple. What Uber's valuation is telling us, and are you ready for some football? But we begin with today's markets, and Bob Bassani's here for that. Bob? And Kelly, it's been a little bit of a choppy day. Uh, it was rough overnight because the PMI manufacturing and service numbers in Europe were much weaker than expected. So everyone's watching the economy. Europe was generally weaker. We were kind of weak at the open, but then our manufacturing and service numbers came out at 945 Eastern, and they were better than expected. In fact, manufacturing 19-month high, great news, and the market sort of lifted on that. So you can see people are watching very carefully. See that going into green right after the market opened? That was the PMI numbers. Watching very carefully the economic statistics today. Uh, what's going on today? Once again, these thematic tech ETFs. The country loves buying social media stocks and solar stocks, lithium and battery stocks. Uh, anything that's related to gaming is doing really well. So every day these ETFs, we call them thematic ETFs. They're based on idea, but they're technology thematic ETFs. Continue to do very well. Every day I see these stocks, these uh, ETFs uh, in the green. The S&P is up about a half a percent for the week. But once again, technology dominates everything. The, the, the big mega cap names are split today here. But just look at the sectors this week. Technology is up 3 percent. Consumer discretion, that's mostly Amazon's up 2 percent. Healthcare is flat. Banks are down 7%. Energy's down 7%. This is very typical of what we've been seeing. And we get these few days where banks and energy move up, but then none of those rallies ever last. It's technology. And mega cap this week, what can you say about this? Here's the five big names in the S&P 500. When you get Apple up 7%, 12% in a month, Apple's up as it passes true trillion dollars. Folks, that moves the stock market. And that's what we're seeing this week. Up largely, S&P up a half a percent largely on those mega cap names. Guys, back to you. Yep, Bob, thank you very much. Bob Bassani. Okay. Now, there's been a lot of talk about the dichotomy between the stock market and the economy. Today's blowout housing numbers show home sales in July surging 25% versus June, while supply is down over 20% from a year ago. Could housing be what gets the economy to line up with the stock market? For more, I'm joined by Constance Hunter. She's the chief economist at KPMG. And Katerina Simonetti is senior portfolio manager for UBS Private Wealth Management. It's good to have you both here. And Constance, I'll just begin with you. I mean, housing, in some cases, like Ed Lemer has said in the past, is the business cycle. So is this telling us that there can be kind of a, a V-shaped fundamental recovery, not just one in the stock market? So, yeah, housing's a leading indicator, and it was actually turning in the quarters before COVID hit, um, and it was just starting to come around because the Fed had lowered rates in 2019, and of course, we're seeing a big rebound now. It's unclear if this is going to be sustainable. We're up about 8.7% year over year based on today's data, and we're almost back 
to February's pre-crisis levels in terms of existing home sales and in terms of housing starts to address the uh, issue with supply, right? So um, certainly low interest rates really help with that. And we're seeing a lot of people at home, right? They, they're reevaluating their home environment. So that is that is spurring a lot of purchases of both new and existing homes. Yeah. Uh, and we really, yeah. So we really think of it as FOMO versus FOGO. FOMO, fear of missing out, and FOGO, fear of going out. All the FOGO aspects of our nature are driving the economy and the stock market right now. Yeah, fair enough. And Katerina, I'll ask you if all of this is already priced in. I mean, especially in the housing sector, we've talked about the massive runs in Home Depot and Lowe's in the home builders. Uh, but does it give you more confidence in the stock market overall, or are you still concerned that things there have just gotten too stretched? Uh, Kelly, thank you for having me on the show. Um, I agree with Constance. I think that the housing markets is a very positive development. This run-up that we're seeing certainly points to the improved uh, consumer confidence. Um, and as we're looking at economies continue to reopen and just uh, overall this V-shaped recovery, which we're thrilled about, but we still can't discount the fact that the economy is not fully recovered yet, and we still are facing the uh, the uh, uncertainty of the uh, upcoming election. We're facing the things that we are uh, that uh, we're we're focused on, you know, leading up to the fall, like trade chance, uh, tensions with China uh, and continued threat of the virus and the absence of the vaccine. So, having said all of that, we are expecting heightened volatility for the months to come. But this yeah. is certainly seen as positive development. You guys basically, Katerina, have three recommendations. You think people should get into cheaper segments of the market to benefit from the next leg up, so mid-caps, uh, maybe global equities, some value names. Uh, the themes like Constance was describing that are accelerated by COVID-19, so that's 5G, the digital transformation and so forth. Um, but you're also recommending some defensive plays like gold, like long-duration treasuries. Uh, you think there's still value to be had there? Absolutely. Um, specifically to investors that feel that they've missed the rally. We think that there's still uh, time to get in as long as they do it strategically and defensively and hedge their portfolios with the defensive plays like gold, like, low like uh, long duration treasuries, just like you said. Um, because the reason for this is, as um, you know, I mentioned earlier, we're expecting a lot of volatility, but we also expect that there is going to be a lot of buying opportunities as we see them right now in sectors that have not benefited from the next le next leg up and as tempting as it is to be buying high flyers we are encouraging investors not to fall into this uh, all this as time trap of buying high and selling low uh, and instead we ask them to be defensive to be strategic and as a matter of fact use this time to rebalance the, yeah. their portfolios which will be extremely it, it sounds simple but it's hard sometimes to buy low and sell high you know it's harder than it sounds uh, to do it consistently anyway. Anyway, Constance, let me bring you back in. You've pointed out that we kind of need to be on the watch for lower rates here as a result of everything that we've been through. So even with the rebounds in housing that we're talking about, even with the rebounds in the market, why do you think this low rate era will stick around for the time being? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, our forecast for 10 years is for it to really remain below 1% for the next year. And a lot of that has to do with what we've seen in previous pandemics, right? We've seen lower real rates after previous pandemics going back several hundred years. Um, And we have increased savings as a result of the pandemic. And that's happening globally, by the way. We're seeing that from China to the U.S. Households are saving more. That higher precautionary savings um, pulls back spending, causes a disinflationary environment. And so we think that there is scope for yields to remain low. on their own. Furthermore, we wouldn't be surprised if yields do start to inch too high and choke off the recovery too early. The Fed is probably going to come in and and try various modalities from jawboning all the way to possibly implementing yield curve control or to keep rates low to make sure that we sustain because as Katerina said before the vaccine, we're in for a very roller coaster type experience of fits and starts. I mean, Bob Pisani was mentioning the PMIs in Europe. We're starting to see cases tick up in some European countries and yeah. countries that they really thought had this under control. So until the vaccine comes, um, you know, we're in for we're in for a little bit of a rocky ride, and um, therefore the Fed is really going to try to make sure that rates are as low as possible to support the parts of the economy yeah. that they can support. Well, I know you're doing your part for the home improvement economy. The plant looks great. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see if right in my room agrees. Uh, Constance Hunter, Katerina Simonetti, a pleasure. Thank you both here to talk about the markets today. Meanwhile, it's official. President Trump will face off with former Vice President Joe Biden as he officially becomes the Democratic candidate. What could a potential Biden White House mean for the economy? Pollster and political strategist Frank Luntz joins Squawk Box today. Talk about why investors should be a bit concerned. The challenge for Biden right now and why he did such a good job last night is that he avoided talking about the specifics, which will make the viewers uh, of your show very concerned about where the markets are going to go, about where investment is going to go, about where their own money is going to go. Joining me now to talk more about the Biden economy and the impact COVID is having on real estate, Don Peebles is the chair and CEO of the Peebles Corporation. He served on President Obama's National Finance Committee and was the former chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. It's great to have you here. Welcome back, Don. Thank you, Keller. Good to be here. So let me start with what Frank said, which is that Biden's a little light on the specifics and is kind of going for this idea of likability and unifying the country. Is that a message that'll sell? I think it's going to help him quite a bit. I think if you look at President Trump's polling and the reaction to President Trump, it's heavily driven by his style. His personal style offends a lot of Americans, and Americans want to see a change there. And so I think that Vice President Biden offers a more congenial um, perspective and 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 a persona and also his ability to work across the aisles. I do think, though, that his policies are going to alarm the financial markets. And I think that that is one of the reasons why he's talking big picture vision as opposed to specifics. I think some of the specifics, though, are going to be a tax increase. But other other elements are going to be very positive for the markets, a more inclusive economy, a more a, a greater focus on addressing some of the issues that the younger generation um, is concerned about, like criminal justice reform and things that have led to these 
um, protest around the country. So I think that you're, we're going to get, you know, some things that are going to be very positive to the market. And I think some other things that are going to cause us some pause. You know, in listening to both what you and uh, Mr. Lunt said this morning, I wonder if Biden is a wolf in sheep's clothing. In other words, somebody who has a more radical agenda, but is trying to pretend like it's not so radical and fine. Or his, is he just a sheep? In other words, is he going to disappoint those in his party who want him to do uh, more aggressive things by uh, basically being, you know, kind of the Joe Biden that we've known for the last 30 years? I mean, first of all, Vice President Biden is a very good human being and a very honorable person. And he is going to be who he is. And I believe that has always been to the center of our party. He's been much more of a centrist in our party. And I think he'll continue to be there. I think that the people to the left, most of the activists understand who Biden is, and they're hoping to get a few things out of him. But they see him more as a transitional president. Mm -hmm. They are totally dissatisfied with Trump. So Biden's a good alternative as a transition. And then hopefully four years, eight years from now, then they get their candidate that they want, who's going to be much more to the left and uh, kind of reorder our country. Yeah, it, it will be interesting to listen for him to sketch out those details in the months ahead. If he does, if the president pushes him on that, uh, there's still a lot, I think, to find out. Let me ask you about real estate, though, because in the meantime, some pretty dramatic headlines down, especially in the Wall Street Journal today, where they're saying that COVID-19 is worse for New York City real estate than either 9-11 or the financial crisis. Um, do, would you agree with that diagnosis? And, and what does the city do to come back from this? Yeah, I think it's worse than both of those. And you can throw in the, the financial crisis of the 1970s as well. I think wow. though it's worse than all three of them. And uh, 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 there was a, an exodus out of New York prior to COVID. Uh, New York was becoming much less competitive um, in terms of a, being a business-friendly environment. It was less competitive and less attractive to high net worth individuals. And as a result of that, people were leaving and they were going to Florida and other places. Companies, smaller hedge funds and private equity funds were leaving as well. Uh, COVID accelerated that and it showed also New Yorkers that they could work and do business um, outside of New York City and they didn't have to be there. Mm -hmm. So you're going to see a massive uh, growth in South Florida real estate. You're already seeing the Hamptons on fire and New York City. I mean, some major projects are selling now at 50 percent discounts for new construction. I wow. think that shows some real stress. That's amazing. And there, you know, I, listen, I'm much younger than you. I don't know much, but it, I'm also in that kind of skeptical camp about what's going to happen to the city for all of the reasons that you've laid out. But time and again, people come back and they say, Kelly, you don't understand. People have said this about New York. You know, after these different crises for decades, the city always comes back. It is fine right now. It is going to stay fine. If real estate prices come down, you'll have a flood of new buyers. What would you say in response to that? I would say that's extremely optimistic thinking. And we've never seen a pandemic before in any in, in the last few generations. And I don't think I think that New York will ultimately come back. It'll come back differently. It'll be a different place and uh, it will be much more affordable. And it's going to take quite a bit to dig out of the hole because you have to look at New York City's politics right now. Mm. Extreme to the left. So they're not focused. The political agenda is not focused on being a business friendly environment, even quality of life. I mean, nobody walking around New York City or living in New York City can say that the quality of life has not diminished significantly. Crime is up. Those are those are elements and stimulus that are going to create more people 
leaving the city. So I think it's going to take New York about a decade or so to dig out of this, maybe longer. Wow. Um, but it's not going to be soon. So, Don, a final question then. Tillman Fertitta was on last week. He has a number of major restaurants in Manhattan. And, of course, he's concerned about where this is all headed. But he had a broader warning for the whole country. He said this isn't just about New York City. He, can't, he said the USA can't come back without New York City. Is that right? No, it's not right. New York City used to be the center of the universe for the financial capital of the globe. Uh, technologies enable that to be a very portable industry as opposed to what it's been in the past. And I think that New York City is going to struggle, but other cities and other states are going to prosper as a result of that. And I think you're going to see the uh, tax-friendly states and the seven states with no uh, personal income tax grow significantly, and it's a much more competitive environment. New York City can come back if it becomes competitive, and if we all recognize that we've got to go and compete with South Florida, we've got to compete with Nashville, we've got to compete with uh, Austin, Texas, and yeah. Dallas, Texas. Um, absent of that, if we keep these blinders on, then New York's hole is going to just get dig, dig deeper. I think the campaign for Don Peebles for mayor is, is going to be kicking up in earnest after this, <laughs> sir. Well, I appreciate the compliment. It's a, I mean, but uh, probably I'll focus on my business, but we'll see. All right. Well, we thank you so much for joining me. I really, really do uh, enjoy hearing your thoughts. And I, we thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Kelly, for having me. Don Peebles is the chairman and CEO of the Peebles Corporation. And we'll have more on what's going on with New York City real estate a little bit later on. But in the meantime, the stats and superlatives we can use to describe Tesla's parabolic move are just too many to count. As this 20, almost $2,100 stock gets ready to split, we'll look at what's next and if it will inevitably come back down to earth. And Tesla might be soaring, but the airlines have been grounded and their misery may be far from over as one key cohort of travelers stays out of the skies. Plus, Epic has a new partner in its battle with Apple. That and more, we're back in two. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. Airline stocks have been beaten up this year with the major carriers down 50 percent or more. The bad news is the industry may not recover for at least three more years. Phil LeBeau joins me now with the reason why, Phil. Well, the big reason is that you're not going to see a lot of people flying at the levels they were in 2019, particularly in the business community, for several more years. In fact, when you talk with airline executives, almost all of them say the same thing. Look, the business traveler is just not going to be coming back at least until 2024. I've heard a few people mention 2025, and that's why when you take a look at the airline stocks, what you're looking at is an industry where, yeah, they're doing a little bit better in terms of getting some of the leisure travelers to fly, but... Corporate travel, it may not rebound for three to four years. Three things are weighing on corporate travel right now. First of all, the COVID-19 
concerns that are out there, not only for your own staff or you as a business person saying, I'm not really crazy about flying right now, not necessarily because of the plane, but because of where you may be going. And as a result, there are few, if any, conventions. Meetings are down dramatically. I rarely hear from my corporate travel friends that, yeah, I've got a meeting that I'm going to for a day. Uh Uh-uh, those days are gone. Instead, they're being replaced with video calls. And in terms of the cash burn, that's the focus right now for investors. The airlines are gradually bringing down their daily cash burn. We heard from Southwest Airlines uh, earlier this week that its daily cash burn for July was a little bit lower than what it previously expected. But that's going to continue through the end of the year, Kelly. So unfortunately, what we're saying here for the airline uh, investors is the real catalyst that they need, corporate travel, it's just not coming back anytime soon. Wow. Well, let's talk about Tesla in the meantime, Phil. Uh, I guess any investors who were in the airline stocks are now in that one. It's getting ready to split. Here's a look at the insane yep. run it's had just this year. Tesla's up 390 percent in 2020. That means it's up nearly five-fold. Its market cap is more than $370 billion. It's one of the biggest companies in the entire world. Phil, I'd ask you about the next catalyst for this stock, but I can't even identify the last couple. I mean, maybe the last quarter certainly was encouraging, but this is a huge sure. run. And then there was the question of, okay, now they posted a profit for the second quarter. Will they join the S&P? Right. And that moved people moving it higher, and then you had the stock split, and that's clearly what's been pushing the stock over the last a couple of weeks, at least since August 11th. So when you look at potential catalysts, there are really three that are on the calendar that look, they're either going to potentially push the stock higher, maybe at least validate the enthusiasm there, and it could also potentially bring the stock lower. You've got Battery Day on September 22nd. A lot of interest in what Elon Musk might say about future batteries, longer range, greater efficiency. Uh, What will they do? And they already lead in terms of battery costs. Q3 deliveries will be announced in the first couple of days of October, and then the Q3 results in late October, early November. The other aspect of the next couple of months that people will be looking at is deliveries. Now, remember, their goal for the year, the guidance that they have put out there is to deliver at least, at least 500,000 vehicles. Remember, they did 360,000 last year. They have not changed that guidance, despite the fact that it was pretty slow at the beginning of the year. But China is what people will be focused on. Finally, take a look at their market cap. And we're also showing you Toyota's market cap as well. This is amazing. Tesla's market cap a year ago, I think it was like $39 billion. It was nowhere close to Toyota. Now it dwarfs Toyota. It's gone up $343 billion in terms of market cap right. in the last year. Kelly. Yeah, in the past year, the stock is up 820%. You know, like we said, we are running out of superlatives, but those are some catalysts to watch for, Phil. Yeah. I appreciate it. Uh, in the meantime, Phil LeBeau talking cars and airlines for us. Coming up, the hotel industry bracing for a wave of foreclosures. Should it get a bailout or some relief? One of my next guests says yes. He'll tell us how much money is needed and how fast to avoid the worst. Plus, this is the most overbought stock in the S&P 500. It's up more than 60% so far this year, and it's the next name in our Crowded King segment. The reveal is ahead. We're back in two. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Futures were lower this morning, but things really turned around after a stronger-than-expected preliminary ISM report this morning. And that really strong existing home sales data were largely hanging on to the gains this afternoon, as you can see behind me. Dow's up 95 points, about a third of a percent, although the S&P is only up a point right now. We'll watch that. The Nasdaq is up 12. Here's a look across the sectors today. Look, it's a pretty familiar picture. Technology, consumer discretionary in the leadership positions, consumer staples there. Industrials being helped out by Deer's Beat this morning. We'll have more on that in just a bit. Laggards, energy, it's in that familiar position there on the far side of your screen. Down 1% today. Materials, financials are also lagging. Here are some of the individual movers this hour. Shares of BioNTech are higher on the news that its COVID vaccine it's developing with Pfizer could enter regulatory review as early as October. The drug makers say ongoing studies show promising safety and immune response data. BioNTech shares are up nearly 7% today. Sticking with biotech, Sorrento Therapeutics buying SmartFarm for nearly $20 million in stock. They say this acquisition will help build a pipeline of gene-encoded therapeutic antibodies, starting with treatments for cancer and, yes, for COVID-19. So Sorrento, despite all of that news, down about 8% today, perhaps some concerns about the valuation that they're paying. And finally, shares of Boston Beer hitting an all-time high after they were named a top pick at Cowan. The bank pointing to reduce spending on advertising and promotions. Uh, pretty shocking for Sam, which is up nearly 3% at a time when most bars and restaurants are largely still closed. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for a CNBC News update. Sue? Thanks so much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. The World Health Organization says it's hoping the pandemic will come to an end in less than two years. At this time, the world has reported more than 22 million confirmed cases and almost 800,000 deaths. That's according to data from Johns Hopkins. The Justice Department is planning to appeal last month's court decision that threw out a death sentence for convicted Boston Marathon bomber Zokar Sarnayev. Attorney General Barr says the department will continue to pursue the death penalty and has threatened to get the Supreme Court involved to do so. And the pandemic will not stop the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. The company is working to reimagine the event to avoid drawing large crowds. Details have not been announced, but the retailer says the event will be similar to its July 4th fireworks show. Bit of good news. That's the news update this hour. Kel, back to you. Mm, all right, Sue. Thank you, Sue Herrera. The Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, is testifying on Capitol Hill today. Eamon Javers has been following his testimony for us and is here with the biggest takeaways. Eamon? Yeah, Kelly, that's right. DeJoy really on the defensive today as uh, Senate Democrats in particular hammered home their skepticism that some of the cost-cutting measures he's put into place over at the Postal Service are actually linked, they worry, to President Trump's skepticism about mail-in voting and an effort uh, that they, they're concerned about to limit votes and how those votes are counted this fall. Here's Senator Carper, what he said today. 
And when I see what's going on with the president who wants to degrade the Postal Service, wants to get rid of vote by mail, you shouldn't be surprised that, that uh, we're alarmed when we see the kind of that degraded service that we're seeing across the country. But DeJoy said all he's trying to do here is to protect the Postal Service for the future by cutting costs and dealing with some of the financial systemic problems that the service has. Here's what he said. I want to assure this committee and the American public that the Postal Service is fully capable and committed to delivering the nation's election mail securely and on time. This sacred duty is my number one priority between now and Election Day. Kelly, all that came today as the president continued to hammer home his criticism of voting by mail, saying that if things don't go right this fall, it could be weeks or months until we know the results of the November election. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers with the latest for us. Coming up, the airline industry received billions of dollars from the U.S. government. The hotel industry hasn't been so lucky. Who's most at risk and what they say could save them? We'll have all of that for you. Plus, Foot Locker putting its best foot forward. Deer goes high tech. Epic has another soldier in its battle against Apple. And why Uber and Lyft have gone from tech to transports. It's in rapid fire right after this. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar on this Friday. It's time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the stories are Eric Chemi, Deirdre Bosa, and Brian Sullivan. Welcome, everybody. First are two pleasant surprises today on the earnings front. Foot Locker and Deer are both topping expectations. Foot Locker's same-store sales soared in the second quarter, and the company announced today it's bringing everything back. It's dividend, it's share repurchase program, executive salaries. The shares are off their highs this afternoon, up about 1%, still down nearly 20% on the year. Meanwhile, Deer raised full-year guidance despite COVID uncertainty on strong farm equipment demand. That stock is up nearly 6% today. And, Brian, about 17% in 2020. So, first of all, it's nice to see someone other than Target and Walmart performing. And we haven't seen people talking about strength in the farm sector in quite some time. No, we have not. And the price of wheat is up 13% year over year. So you got to keep the price of wheat up because farmers, they've got a farm. I mean, everybody's stocking up on food at the grocery store. I appreciate the hard work that the women and men out there in the fields of Iowa, Nebraska, and everywhere else is doing Corn is down, but listen, John Deere could be a beneficiary of low interest rates as well. I don't know about Eric or Deirdre the last time they went shopping for a harvester, but some <laughs> of them could run in the multi-hundreds of thousands of dollars. Don't be a John Deere is also a beneficiary of low rates. We talk about housing. Hey, some of these things, these combines these farmers use, Brian, they cost as much as a house. Brian, this reminds me, my, my buddy Big Ed down in Charlotte, he owns a boat dealership, <laughs> and we've been talking about this for a long time. It's low interest rates and it's low oil prices. So for selling boats, it's the same thing he's seen his business take off for social distancing reasons. But, but these tractors are the same thing. Like you said, low interest rates and low gas. you got to fill these things up. you got to get them to run. So those two things and are in the favor of actually being able to buy these things and keeping them going. They also called out government stimulus payments um, and also the direct aid that I think it was $14 billion of aid. So that's been helping. But again, the shares are at an all time high. So you, your guys point is taken. I wanted to ask you quickly as well about Foot Locker. I mean, that one is surprising to me because it's so mall based right. that, the, you know, what what accounts for 
That's people, a good question, right? Yeah. I mean, but like the mall by me, I see people standing outside in lines waiting for the Nike store. So there's clearly some some just societal push to look good, even though you can't see anybody's <laughs> shoes on these webcams. I, it, maybe the consumer <laughs> is just stronger than everyone has been worried about. That's why we are at all-time highs in the market generally. So Foot Locker reflects that, right? If we're going to be at all-time highs in the market, that means people have money. They want to buy stuff. Yeah. So it makes sense that they're buying shoes that they really don't really need. I bet Deirdre is wearing sneakers right now. Who wants to bet? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hate to say it, I'm not wearing any shoes at all. Sometimes I'm wearing slippers, but why wear no. shoes inside? I'm sorry. You, you outed me, guys. I know, I, I <laughs> thought about it. I'm not buying shoes either. Yeah, I was like, am um, I going But I have there? seen, I, 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 <laughs> I have seen those lineup sets. So certainly there is pent-up demand. Uh, but, you know, it raises some questions. What's happening to all of these operational efficiencies? Foot Locker you know, far from out of the woods right now. We don't know what the back-to-school season is going to look like. So the fact that they're reinstating their dividend, executive compensation, what does that mean if we, you know, the virus surges once again and we do see um, people retreat and you're not seeing those kinds of sales? Are they going to have to go back and put those efficiencies in place? So that's that's one question yeah. that came up for me. By the way, Brian, flip-flops that nice are nothing to like, I mean, that's like a show-off. Oh, I, I, that's why I did it. I'm so fancy. My flip-flops are nicer than Deirdre's Did Brian feet, show us apparently. his feet? No, just the flip-flop, Deirdre. <laughs> no, just, the just flip-flop. Just the flip-flop, everybody who's listening. Show us your feet, Debo. No, let's quickly move on. Uh, next no at the 11th way. hour, both Uber and Lyft won their legal game of chicken with California. The state appeals court granted the rideshare companies a delay yesterday in having to classify drivers as employees per labor law AB5. Now, Uber and Lyft can continue to operate as usual, but... Interestingly, is the magic gone from the stocks anyway? Dan Gallagher in the Wall Street Journal today delivering the ultimate insult, Deirdre, saying the companies are trading more like transportation than tech companies these days. <laughs> that is correct. That is the ultimate insult, but it's one that they've been facing for a very long time. Tracing back to their IPO, remember when Uber was going to be a $100 billion plus market cap company? Hasn't even got anywhere close to that as a public company. Lyft is far below its uh, private market valuation seen years ago. So the question, though, is going forward, is this inevitable? Do they stay here or do, are they able to keep their business model as is, not just here in the U.S. for Uber, but around the world? That's increasingly looking like it's not going to be the case. Of course, what happened yesterday, that 11th hour reprieve that they got, that just kicks the can down the road. Yeah. We'll see what happens in November, but that is going to be a pivotal moment. Uh, Eric, it's interesting to think about how many different companies have sold themselves as tech companies. And, you know, it, there's all this excitement, especially in the early stages, and maybe that's why these companies should get out to the public market sooner. But here they are, I don't know, a year after the IPO, and it's already like, eh. there's, there's technology in everything. Whatever industry you're in, there's technology in it. So every company from rideshare to insurance can't call themselves tech companies. They are what they are. <laughs> these guys are rideshares. It's transportation. People are buying cars. They're not getting in car shares. We're in a pandemic. Of mm -hmm. course these stocks are down. It doesn't matter that they say they're tech companies. They are ride-sharing companies. They're transportation companies. They're taxis. Why, That's all they are. Guys, why are we only focused on Uber and Lyft? This law, AB5, <laughs> goes anybody in the gig economy. Instacart 100%, workers, yes. DoorDash. There's a lot of other people affected other than the drivers. Not saying the drivers don't matter, but let's be honest. There are hundreds of thousands of other people who are probably screaming, why is Uber getting all the attention? What about my job? And, and unfortunately, Brian, if they succeed on Prop 22... Deirdre, I'll go to you on this real quickly, but if they succeed on Prop 22, they get a carve out, but nobody else does. So the issue for the less pu uh, publicized 
you know, companies in the economy remains unresolved. Yeah, and I was just going to say, I don't think they're screaming. They're probably being very, very quiet, hoping that, you know, they don't face a preliminary injunction. But, Kelly, you're absolutely right. Prop 22 doesn't just affect Uber and Lyft, but it's not just Uber and Lyft sponsoring this ballot initiative. DoorDash, Instacart, Postmates, they also see the writing on the wall here. Yeah. The question is, what happens to the sharing economy going forward? This could be a big hit with not just implications in California, but the rest of the country, too, because remember, there's other states looking yeah. at similar legislation. And I like portable benefits. We spoke with the mayor of San Jose about that yesterday. It could be a solution here. We'll see if other states go that route, even California. Meanwhile, another fight against Apple is escalating. This one from news publishers. This story is pretty fascinating. Apple usually takes a 15 to 30 percent cut from publishers for their first time subscriptions through the App Store. But it's been revealed that Apple has a reduced rate for Amazon. Now the trade group for the likes of The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, Vox, our parent company, NBC. They've written an open letter to Apple CEO Tim Cook saying that news publishers should get the same terms, Eric, as Amazon's. And by the way, while these two sides have been fighting for a long time, the fact that they're now able to say, well, we, we want what Amazon gets might be some powerful I mean, new, but, art, new piece of information I for mean, them. But, I mean, Amazon's uh, founder is the richest person in the world, right? Amazon's a trillion-dollar company. Who, who are we? We're yeah. not that. Our parent <laughs> companies know where they're not Amazon. Let's face it. They get a better deal because they have more clout. These news organizations don't have as much clout, so they get the deal that they get. Right. right. Let's but, just leave it at that. But altogether you know, are they able, and it's, it's not, I guess, so much you're right about individual cases throwing around their market power, but at a time when Apple's under antitrust scrutiny, do they kind of know, hey, we band together, we're saying we're not even getting fair terms, and maybe they can ultimately win, Brian, a bigger victory against the, you know, them and others like Epic Games, which is hosting a, like an anti-Apple, you know, prize night, you know, get a, earn a bigger victory against Apple. Yeah, let's not forget. I mean, they, they, you said it. They filed a federal lawsuit. I mean, this is going to work its way through the courts. You look at the app store market like the cell phone market. It's largely a two-horse race, maybe a two-and-a-half-horse race as well. And the government and the DOJ and maybe some folks on the antitrust side are going to have to decide if these app stores, particularly Apple's, have gotten a little bit too big for their britches. I think that, as we know, everything in life, to paraphrase Eric Chemi, comes down to the movie Caddyshack, you'll get none and like it. And I think that's what Apple is saying to everybody but Amazon. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, what's on TV these days, and it's football. Uh, for now, it looks like we will have football this fall. The NFL season will start on September 10th, Houston Texans versus the Kansas City Chiefs. But the model is largely similar to the MLBs, and they've had a numerous COVID outbreaks. Still, it's not stopping Viacom CBS for asking for $5.5 million for 30-second spots in this year's Super Bowl. CBS not raising ad prices, but buyers, Eric, are demanding a way out of their commitments, right, if the event is canceled. Yeah, well, of course. I mean, if I'm paying you $5.5 million to get a Super Bowl ad and there's no Super Bowl, then what happens to my money? Or if there's some weird version of the NFL this season. So, of course, buyers, I mean, you have to protect your assets, your shareholders' money. If I'm writing you a check for $5.5 bucks, I want to say to CBS, can we put something in writing? that I can get a refund if this doesn't go according to plan and it's not the Super Bowl that we're used to. So far, CBS says, we'll leave that as a verbal uh, promise that will give you your money back. I don't know how much I would trust that. Deirdre, it speaks to <laughs> how much is at stake here as well. I mean, the Super Bowl is still the premier event for television. So what they're able to charge with ad rates, whether this thing even gets on TV at a time when streaming has won so much market share is a is sort of the trillion dollar question. 
Yeah, and let me flip that on its head. If the Super Bowl does go ahead and you're getting the same rate that you was that was charged last year, but there's more people watching it because they're stuck at home and less sports event, you could look pretty smart to shareholders. I don't know. But I also think it's interesting what Pepsi is doing, committing to commercials but changing the content of their commercials. You're not going to see J-Lo. You're not going to see Beyonce. You're going to see Pepsi commercials of people in their own homes <laughs> watching football. So I think that's an interesting strategy right there. And what does that tell you, Bri? For, for football's going to, the NFL is going to go on. I mean, if they have to go into a bubble like the NBA and then quarantine for a couple of months as teams, they're going to do that. This is like a 20 to $30 billion a year industry uh, by the way, I think the question for Deirdre Bosa is less about the Super Bowl, more about the Grey Cup. I mean, can the Blue Bombers finally defeat the Alouettes? The I have what? no idea. Maybe she does. I, yeah. I have she no idea what you're talking about. Canada, Canada, Canada. Just move we, on. We only He's talking here. about Canada. Canada. <laughs> CFL, baby. The Alouettes of Montreal. See, talk to me about the anyway, NHL. No, there the will CFL, be an NFL. I'm I've literally never even heard of those teams. So let's turn to the big question that's hanging over college football, over college classes and college parties. Which one or ones of those should be canceled to preserve the fall semester? I asked former FDA director and CNBC contributor Dr. Scott Gottlieb about how to battle these campus outbreaks this morning. Here's what he said on Squawk Box. You want to have the economy functioning and be able to go out into stores? Maybe we should have universal masking. You want to return to college campuses this fall? Maybe you're going to have to give up large parties. And if the universities want to, they can, they can enforce that with the threat of expulsion. Brian Sullivan, are universities ever going to expel students for going to parties? And if not, are we ever really going to stop the spread of COVID? Well, they probably, they probably will. I'm sure there'll be cases out there to set examples. I mean, what did they expect? Did they expect that kids were going to come back and, and not do what kids do? I'm going to say something, and I like to joke around and be very serious here. These kids, my friend's son just left for college today. These kids, they're not worried about it. I, and right or wrong, mm -hmm. they're not worried about it. The fatality rate for people under 24 is almost statistically zero. And, I, and there have been fatalities, and every one is too many. But these kids are aware of the statistics. The risk, and I think you made the point the other day, Kelly, is that if they go to college, they start to spread it, and then you send them home. Now you're risking mom, dad, grandma, the neighborhood. If we start to see outbreaks, and we will, there right, is no question there the, will be outbreaks. Brian, here's the They're thing. going to have to keep them with other young people somehow. That's totally. It. But even what for right now. What was going to happen? No, and I totally, totally agree with you. But you're a college student. You know you're at very little risk. But you know that there's people who work on your campus who are at greater risk. I mean, so what do you do? I mean, you stay away from them. I don't know what they're going to do. Once they've got them, they, they brought them down. That's the point. It, they're already there. Yeah. Once they're there, they've got an obligation, I think, to keep them there. The teachers maybe can teach virtually. They can do whatever they need to do to separate themselves from the vulnerable population. Yeah. Listen, every 1968, 1968 pandemic, twice as deadly to young people as COVID. We never talk about it, mm -hmm. but it was twice as deadly, killed millions of people around the world, a couple million people around the world. Young people will have to lead us out of this by generating antibodies because they're able to withstand it a lot better. And Eric, this all came up as well in a Tyler Cowen piece today where he argued to some extent against canceling college football by saying, look, it's not the classes, it's not even the football, it's the parties that are the problem. 
I mean, there's a lot of problems, right, when you put these people in different groups. So uh, sports, I mean, do you really need these people to all be interacting together and then they spread it, they travel, to, they're going to have to travel across state lines to go to all these other football games. So right. it's just any, any way you're putting these people together in big groups, you're going to have a problem, whether it's sports or parties. It's all some version of a gathering. Yeah, I know. All right, we got to go. Very interesting stuff, guys, as always. Really appreciate your time today. Eric Chemi, Deirdre Bosa, and Brian Sullivan and Rapid Fire. Still ahead, it's the most overbought stock in the entire S&P 500. That's today's overcrowded king. We'll dig into it next. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange. It is time for today's crowded king. This one is the most overbought on a 50-day and RSI basis in the S&P 500 right now. It is L Brands. Check out these stats. Here's your gap between the stock price and the 50-day moving average. The highest of the week, uh, L Brands is 51% above its 50-day moving average right now in its RSI, Relative Strength Index. Anything above 70 is overbought. It's sitting up there at 80. So here's how we got here. Its performance this year, it's up 64%. Again, for a mall-based retailer, which is just tells you something. It's rallied 271 percent from its 52-week low, so it's near, up nearly four times. That low was $8 back in March. L Brands has sprung all the way back up to nearly $30 a share. And still to come, it's Bright Lights, Empty City, how the pandemic could shutter some big New York City hotels for good. Next, then tonight at 6 p.m., Kramer's out. But we have you covered with Summer School. We're taking your questions and exploring some high-flying stocks off the beaten path. Frank Holland and Josh Brown are live at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. The pandemic has had devastating impacts on the travel sector, especially New York City hotels, a lot of which could be closing permanently. Seema Modi is here with more. Seema? Kelly, no Broadway shows or access to museums means visitors have stopped coming to New York City. And that's reflected in the latest hotel occupancy data. Only 27% of rooms were full last month. That includes homeless, compared to the 89% last July. Now, a growing number of hotels in the Big Apple have missed debt payments. The Marriott W in the Financial District, Omni Hotel in Midtown, and the Hilton in Times Square. That's according to data reviewed by CNBC. And several have shut their doors. Other properties are looking at conversions, Bryant Park reportedly being turned into office space. Now, hospitality investment bank Robert Douglas says similar to what we're seeing in retail, prices of certain hotel properties have come down by around 20 percent. And that could create opportunities for longer term investors. Sources say Barry Sternlicht is in the process of raising an $8 billion fund, part of which will be used to buy distressed hotel properties. Even before COVID, experts were concerned there were too many hotel rooms in New York. Get this, Kelly. Over the last five years, New York City has added more hotel rooms than any other market in the U.S. Wow, I'm adding that up. That looks like 15,000 rooms in just exactly. the last couple of years. Wow, Seema, thank you. As you take a look at the dismal stock performance of some of the largest hotel chains in the country, there's another headwind facing them, and it's the looming threat of foreclosures. Joining me now is Chip Rogers. He's CEO of the American Hotel and Lodging Association. Chip, it's good to have you. So what do you think we're talking about in terms of the scale of foreclosures nationwide? It's going to be bad. There's no question about it. We're already beginning to see it. I think what you're 
experiencing there in New York is uh, is really going to happen all across the country. As we look at, particularly at commercial mortgage-backed securities, uh, we already see these delinquency rates at over 25% nationwide. You put that into perspective, those delinquency rates of 30 days or, or longer uh, in January of this year were at 1%. And so it's happening, and it's happening right in front of us. Is that because there was no government relief or because it was limited? What happened with PPP funds? How many hotels were able to make use of them? Yeah, some of the hotels could uh, do PPP funds, but of course that was intended to last about eight weeks. So most of that money, if not all of it, has already been used. And most of it, of course, had to be used on paying hotel employees. Keep that in mind, those ratios, uh, which started at 75% and were lowered to 60%, required that you use it on employees. And so a lot of the debt that is out there couldn't be serviced. And now we're seeing the results of that as so many hotels are really facing the brink of foreclosure. Would the Fed's Main Street program offer any relief? No, the Main Street program, sadly, has been a complete failure. Um, the problem with many of these loans is that you can't take on additional debt. Now, there is some legislation in Congress called the HOPE Act that we're very hopeful for uh, that would allow a preferred uh, equity position uh, that would act almost like a loan, but it would be preferred equity that would allow these holders of this CMBS debt to make their payments and get past the pandemic. But if something like that doesn't occur, then you're going to see massive foreclosures all across the country. You look at New York, where the CMBS delinquency rate is about 39%. Hmm. Look at Houston, where the delinquency rate is two-thirds. It's 66%. Wow. So let me ask you this, because a lot of people listen and go, okay, you're telling me basically the problem is the ones who can't pay their debt. Well, is there a problem for having so much debt in the first place, or is there something inherent to being a hotel operator that you just tend to carry a lot of debt? Well, they're large structures. I mean, they're, they're massive real estate, pieces of real estate, not just the land, but the structures themselves. So, yeah, the, the industry is always going to have significant amounts of debt because you, they're just big buildings. And, and on top of that, too, one of the things that's lost is massive amounts of real estate taxes that you have to pay that probably aren't going to be paid. So local government's going to feel the brunt of this as well. So there's what recourse at this point? Direct uh, funds, which you know will be called bailout funds for the hotel industry? Well, it, it, people that call them bailout funds, frankly, don't really understand what's going on. It's unfortunate that that terminology is being used. Yeah. All these owners are asking for is what every other industry has gained access to, and that is low-interest funds so that they can pay their debt and then pay back those loans. They're more than willing to do so. But right now, Main Street Lending doesn't afford that. There's no program out there that affords that. So if you would just give them a lifesaver to help them through this period, they're more than willing to pay all that back if they're, avail if they're eligible to gain access to the money. I mean, is the worst case scenario that all these hotels change hands? Well, that's the problem is that it's not going to change hands overnight because the demand is not necessarily there. So yeah. these hotels, they're either going to change into something else, which, by the way, means thousands and hundreds of thousands of jobs lost. Hmm. Or they're just going to sit vacant for years, fall into disrepair, going to take millions and millions of dollars to get them back up and running again. And that's going to be years down the road. Interesting. Chip, I have to say there's a lot here to think about, a lot more ramifications than I'd realized. Thank you very much for coming on today. Yeah, thank you. Chip yeah. Rogers is the American Hotel and Lodging Association president and CEO. That does it for The Exchange. Coming up. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. 
Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.